you got a Bible this morning, Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. As we continue to plow our way through the book of Daniel together, Daniel chapter 9, we'll read verses 1 to 19 together. So if you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, I encourage you to open it. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you want to follow along there as we read together, I encourage you to do that as well. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 19 together. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity for under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. And now our Lord God, who brought us who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. 
O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your name or your people are called by your name. This is God's word. The beginning of the series back in Daniel chapter one, several months ago, I drew your attention to Psalm 137 verses one to six, in which the psalmist writes these words by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. In Psalm 137, the psalmist is saying this, whenever Babylon came in and ransacked Jerusalem, overthrew the the, the city, uh, destroyed the temple, uh, pilfered it and carried away all kinds of possessions and the people to Babylon, it says their captors tormented them and basically poked at them, okay, ridiculed them, saying, why don't you sing us one of those songs that you used to sing back there in Jerusalem whenever you made pilgrimage to the temple? Why don't you sing us one of those songs as we make our way from Jerusalem to Babylon? Why don't you sing us one of those songs as now your captives here within our foreign land? And the author says, we hung up our lyres. In other words, we put our musical instruments away because we we had no song to sing there in Babylon because of all that had come upon us. And he says this, how can I forget Jerusalem? How can I forget the Lord's holy city? How can I forget that place on earth that God had carved out as His inhabitants? How can I forget that? He says, if I forget that, if I abandon that, if I turn my back on that, He says, let my tongue stick to the top of my mouth that I might not be able to sing another song for the rest of my life if I don't sing of Jerusalem. That's what He says in Psalm 137. Out of this context that He finds themselves. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. May I not be able to sing at all if I exchange the glory of the city of God for the lesser glories of the cities of this world while I'm in exile. Now, as we progress throughout the book of Daniel, what we've seen is that God's covenant people are in exile. They're in a foreign land under a foreign ruler. Okay, and they find themselves there with the, Jeru- with the city of Jerusalem in ruins, the temple desolated and pilfered, and yet how shall they sing the Lord's song in this foreign land, church? And I believe one of the secrets to that, to singing the Lord's song in a foreign land, is found in what we have here in Daniel chapter 9. Not only for Daniel in his day, church, but listen, you and I, if we read the book of 1 Peter, you discover very quickly that the same situation Daniel and the people of Israel found themselves in in their day is the situation of God's people in this day and in every day until Jesus returns comes, calls us home, rights all wrongs, and restores all of creation. They find themselves as uh, exilic people in a foreign land living as strangers and aliens who are not yet home. And so how do we continue to sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? Sing of God's city in this city of our birth. 
And I believe in Daniel 9, we find one of the keys, and that is a vibrant prayer life. A vibrant prayer life. And there's just real, real simple, there's three things I want you to see. It sounds about right, okay? Three things that I want you to see out of this text about a vibrant prayer life as we aim to continue to set our minds upon the city of God and turn our backs upon the values of the city of this world. Not that we turn our backs on the people, but on the values of the city. How do we continue to sing God's song here and now until He calls us home? And there's three things. And the first one is this. How do you develop a vibrant prayer life as an exile? And the first one is that you have your, a vibrant prayer life needs quality fuel, church. You've got to learn to fuel yourself with God's revelation. Fuel yourself with God's revelation. See, uh, just those of you who don't know about the internal workings of an internal combustion engine, I don't know much, but one thing that I do know is every time that I pull up to the gas station, okay, there are usually within our community four separate nozzles that you can dispense, or, or two separate nozzles you can dispense fuel with and buttons you can push in order to determine what kind of fuel you want to come out, right? You got the 87, you got the 89, and you got the 91 octane, right? Unleaded gasoline. And then those have a black rim around the nozzle. And then on the other side, you've got this other nozzle that has a green rim around it, okay? For those of you who don't know, that's diesel, Okay? And if you take one of those fuels that's not meant for the other type of engine and try to place it into the other kind of engine, if you took 91 premium, 93 premium, high quality octane unleaded and you try to put it in a diesel engine, you're going to have problems, church major problems eventually, right? Because whenever you do not put the appropriate kind of fuel into the appropriate engine, eventually that engine begins to spit, it begins to sputter, and eventually it can seize and stop working altogether. And the same is true for our prayer lives. Listen, when you try to fuel a prayer life as an exile in a foreign land, you fuel it on like these little spiritual memes that float around on Instagram. Listen, eventually your prayer life is going to spit and sputter and seize. Or whenever you try to fuel an exilic type prayer life on heartwarming stories that you might read on Facebook. Right? Wasn't that great? Right? Eventually your prayer life is going to wither, it's going to seize. But in verses 1 to 3, we see the kind of high quality premium fuel that powered Daniel's prayer life in Daniel chapter 9. I want you to notice something with me. It's worth noting that the word then at the beginning of verse 3 is connected to the perception in verse 2. Okay, so in verse 3, Daniel says, then, in other words, something happens and then I do something else. What is it that happens for Daniel in verse 2 that would prompt an action from him in verse 3? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, what is Daniel doing? He opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he begins to read. And as he reads through the prophet, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, as he reads through the prophet Jeremiah, right, what happens in verse 3? Immediately, right? Then he does what? turns his face to heaven and he cries out to God in prayer because he's been spending time in the book. 
Okay, he's been spending time in God's revelation. What is it that he sees in Jeremiah that causes him to cry out in prayer that he perceives that what God had promised through the prophet previously was that this time in Babylon was going to be temporary and it was going to be a 70-year window. A 70-year window. Where does he see that? Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Let me stop right there. That is not a graduation verse. Okay? So in May, when you get that card out and start writing notes to graduates, please don't write Jeremiah 29, 11. It's not about graduation. Okay, it's a promise that God makes to His people before He sends them into exile. And He says, I'm not done with you. Discipline's coming, but I'm not done. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Daniel is reading Jeremiah and he comes across this promise in Jeremiah 29 that God, though where he would send discipline, he is not done, and there's a, there's a temporary period that's going to end in 70 years, and he's going to restore their fortunes, he's going to bring them back from the corners of the earth to which he has scattered them, regather them in Jerusalem, and bless them. And then, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, he turns his face to the heavens, to the Lord, and he begins to cry out in prayer. Do you, uh, do you see what prompts Daniel to pray? It is God's revelation. What God has said, the word of God to his people prompts the prayers of his people to their God. I don't know how to say it more simply. You, you, if you can come out with it, that's great. But the word of God to his people prompts the prayers of his people to their God. And when your exposure to God's revelation is lacking, then your prayer life is going to suffer. When your time in the Scriptures gets replaced by time on Instagram, gets replaced by time on Facebook, gets replaced by time watching SportsCenter, gets replaced by... right. Movies and binging Netflix shows, when your time in the Scriptures gets replaced by that, or at the lake, or wherever it is, when it gets replaced, your prayer life will suffer. See, if you're going to have a vibrant prayer life as an exile in the midst of this foreign and strange land that is not your home, you've got to fill up on the Scriptures. You've got to fuel yourself with God's revelation. And that can happen in at least these three ways. First of all, personally. In your own private time with the Lord as you open His Word from day to day, and as you begin to read the Scriptures, you put a plan in place and say, I'm going to read through the New Testament this year. I'll read through the Old Testament this year. I'll read through the entire Bible this year. Or I'm going to pick a, a plan that 
gives me a passage from the Old Testament and a passage from the New Testament and a passage from the Psalms and a passage from, the, from, the, from Proverbs. I'm going to read every day. So you're investing time there. And as you see what God has said, it should stir within you a desire to respond to Him in prayer. Personally, but also communally. Right, in the context of conversations with the believers who are talking about God's Word together, discussing the implications of God's Word together, whether that be in a neighborhood, whether that be friends of yours, whether that be on the phone conversations, whether that be in person in life groups, that you're having this communal conversation about the Scriptures and what they mean, and then you're beginning to pray those together back to the Lord, saying, would you make it so in us and for us? In our time. So you've got personal, you've got communal, but you also have corporate. Right? Because every single Sunday when we gather here, right, our pastors and teachers and elders, we open the scriptures and we begin to teach them. Right? We work through books of the Bible or themes and topics across the pages of Scripture. And as we preach and teach, there are some, you maybe have experienced this, probably not here because I'm the one who's preaching most of the time, but other places with good preachers, you've probably experienced it where God has spoken to you through the pastor as he reads a text, explains it, expounds it, and applies it. And you go, that makes sense for the first time. I see what I'm supposed to do with that. And then you begin to God pray, God, would you help me? Would you give me the grace that I need to do what you've called me to do and be who you've called me to be? Right? So there's this corporate aspect to it, a communal aspect to it, and a personal aspect to it. And as you fill up on God's Word, listen, church, here's what happens. You learn to take what He has said and pray it back to Him. In several ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, you learn to pray the promises of God. Right? There are certain promises that God makes to us throughout the Scriptures that if we understand them appropriately in context, then we can begin to grab a hold of and pray them back to Him like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul writes these words. He said, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you, He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, God started something in you when He saved you to conform you to the image of Christ. And until the day that Jesus returns, right? He's not like you and I where we start a few projects here and there and then like we, we get like, like, I like to build stuff, but I don't like to paint stuff. You know what I'm saying? And so I can cut all the wood, put it all together, and then it just sits there for a while. Okay? That's not God. Right? God doesn't start stuff that He goes, ah, throw that in the scrap pile and start over. What He starts, He finishes. It's a promise that He's going to complete what He's begun in your life. And so in those moments in which you feel hopeless or in despair about your progress as a Christian, what do you need to learn to do? Pray the promise of Philippians 1. God, I believe that You are not going to give up on me. That You're not done with me. Even though I'm done with myself today, even though I'm done with other people today, God, I know you're not done with me. I know you're going to carry it on to completion, God. So would you, through all of the craziness of my circumstances right now, keep doing what you're doing in my life to conform me to the image of Christ? Because I know you've got a work that you're going to complete. It's prayer. Pray the commands of God. In Romans chapter 12, 
Paul writes this, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says a couple of commands there, right? Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. These are commands that he gives. And so as you read those things, you're taking them and you're saying, God, like a lot of living sacrifices, I have the tendency to crawl off the altar on a daily basis. Would you strengthen me with your grace and give me greater resolve to serve you well? God, would you help me not to adopt the viewpoints of the world as they swarm and circulate around me that I wouldn't be pressed into its mold? But God, would you continue to transform, change the way that I think, take this verse and pray it back to him, those commands that he gives, saying, God, I can't do these without you. Would you do them? Give me strength and grace that I need to do them and to fall upon you when I fail, knowing there's a sacrifice that's been offered once and for all for every time that I crawl off the altar. Or you pray the Psalms, Psalm 137, God, would you... Would you take my tongue and would you cause me to sing of your city, not of this city? I suppose you read the scriptures and respond to them. Right? You're fueling yourself with God's revelation. And it's developing this vibrant prayer life as you commune with God. So fuel yourself with God's revelation. Second of all, at the center of your prayer life, feature God's reputation. You feature God's reputation at the center. Now listen, I know back in the day before COVID when movie theaters used to, like, I, think, I think they're open again, right? But when we used to go to movies, okay? And you walk into the theater, right? So you take money out of your retirement account so you can buy popcorn and tickets and drinks, okay? And then you walk into the theater and you present your ticket and they let you in and you get your snacks and you get your drinks and you go sit down in the stadium seating with surround sound. Right, And then as you're sitting there and talking, all of a sudden commercials start playing. Okay? So they got commercials for cell phones and commercials for cable subscriptions and commercials for all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden at one point the lights kind of dim halfway and then the trailers begin. Okay? So you got all the upcoming movies. And so you watch trailer after trailer after trailer after trailer after trailer. Right? Sometimes five to eight trailers there at the movies. And then finally there's this little cute animation that comes on that says silence your cell phone and keep your mouth shut okay that's basically what it says okay so you don't disturb anybody else around you and then the lights dim all the way and they begin to roll the full feature length film now it would be crazy to drop the kind of coin on the tickets and the drinks and the popcorn to say at the end of the commercials well i'm done walk on out right or at the end of the trailers to say, well, you know what? Those are some interesting movies coming up. It's like it's time for me to go toss your popcorn and drinks. Or at the end of somebody telling you to zip your lips, right? I think I'm out of here, right? If you didn't stay for the full feature. Because the full feature film is what you've come for, right? That's why you're there. And church, I want to tell you something that at the center, the full feature of all of our prayer lives ought to be the reputation of God. 
His name, His glory, His renown. And yet so often in my life, and I would imagine so often in yours, much of our prayers do not feature God's reputation because we stop short at our situations. And that's where we stop. The situations that we find ourselves in. But what we see in these verses is that Daniel is appealing. Listen, he's appealing to God's faithfulness as a loving and covenant-keeping God that He would keep His Word and bring this time of discipline to an end not for the sake of the people, but for the sake of God's name and reputation. Let me show you. In verses 16 to 19, a number of occasions. First of all, in verse 16, O Lord, according to Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy hill. It belongs to You, God, and it is in ruins. On account of our sins, He says, Jerusalem and Your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, a byword in the English language, this is what it literally means. It means a notorious example or illustration of something that has transpired. Right? So, it's a notorious example. Not a famous one, but an infamous one. You know the difference? One is good, one is bad, right? So it's an infamous example of the discipline of God upon His people as it has fallen upon His people and His city. The people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem have become this notorious example of God's discipline against sin. In verse 17, it says, Now therefore... O our God, listen to the prayer of Your servant and to His pleas for mercy. And for Your own sake, O Lord, make Your face shine upon Your sanctuary which is desolate. Again in verse 18, O my God, incline Your ear and hear. Open Your eyes and see our desolations. And the city that is called by what? Your name. Verse 19, O Lord, and here's perhaps the most clear place. O Lord, Hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for Your own sake. O my God, because Your city and Your people are called by Your name. Over and over again in these four verses, Daniel says, it's Your name. It's Your name. It's Your name. For Your sake, God. For Your sake. For Your sake. Because Daniel's prayer isn't just dealing with the situation of the people, but ultimately centers on the reputation of God. Now listen, let me be very clear with you this morning, church. Our situations are often the occasions for our prayers, aren't they? And that is, that is fine and appropriate and natural. But the problem is when our prayers stop short, Stop short of the ultimate aim of God's reputation. Right? It is not wrong to say, Father, I am struggling financially. Would you provide resources? It's not wrong to say, I'm lonely. Would you bring friends? I'm hurting. Would you provide healing? My family's unraveling. Would you stitch us back together? Right? Those are situations that are occasions for our prayers. But so often we stop. We, like, it's like, okay, we got our popcorn, we got our drink, we got our seat, we got our ticket, the commercials, the trailers, the keep your mouth shut screen, and then we walk out the theater. 
And we miss the feature of God's reputation. Those things are not wrong to pray for. Because I think God delights it whenever we recognize, hey, listen, I have come to the end of myself. And the only hope I have here is of God showing up. But not just God showing up so that my situation can improve, but so that His reputation will be broadcast to the ends of the earth. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray this way in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Lord's Prayer. When he begins the Lord's Prayer, he says what? Our Father who is in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. That word hallowed literally means this, to set apart, to make holy, to set above and beyond. In other words, God, would your name take precedence? God, would your name be the highest aspiration of our hearts? God, would we stand in awe at your name? Would it be set apart and holy? Right? That's what, he's, that's what Jesus teaches us to pray for. And in fact, that word hallowed in the Greek text there in Matthew is an imperative, right? So he's not just saying, yeah, it's kind of like you go to God and He is this really high and holy being and then you pray for all these things. He's saying, no, the first thing when you go in is that you pray that God's name and His renown and His fame and His reputation would be utmost in your life. Now, praying in our situations for God's reputation, listen church, it is not a formula. Okay? It's an instinct or an impulse that develops over time. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Listen, we are not like Harry Potter, okay? Where we're going out and casting spells and incantations, Right? And so if we get the wording wrong, all right, if we, if we mix it up or jumble it up somehow, if we forget a phrase here or add a phrase there, right, it's not like, okay, the incantation doesn't work or the spell doesn't work. We're not magicians, we're Christians. Okay? It's not a formula, it's an impulse in our lives. So what that means is that as you go before God in prayer, right, that you're not going, okay, let me, let me make sure I get this phrase first and then this phrase second and i got to order it this way. Oh, I can't forget this part. i got to slide it in there. No, the Lord knows your heart. He's able to see the motivations that are moving you to prayer. Right? But for our own sake, oftentimes we ought to express, we got to express those to God. I wonder oftentimes if the reason so many folks are so nervous about praying in public is because they think they're going to get the words wrong. But listen, it's not a formula. It's this impulse. So whether it comes at the front, or whether it comes at the back, or whether it comes somewhere in the middle, that you're saying, God, would you show up and heal wounds in my family so that we together might give you glory. That, that's, that's it. God, would you provide for us financially because we lost a job, lost a spouse, so that the world would see how good of a kind and loving Father you are. That's it. So you fuel it with God's revelation. You feature God's reputation in your prayer as an exile. So the world would have a witness of just how good and gracious 
He is. And then finally, church, a vibrant prayer life also needs a firm footing. It needs a firm footing. And if we're going to develop this kind of vibrant prayer life as exiles, we must learn to stand on God's mercy. See, much of Daniel's prayer, much of Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 is a confession of the sins of the people, the sins of Israel's leaders and the sins of their ancestors, those who have come before them, their fathers. In verse 8, Daniel says, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Open shame is different than secret shame because secret shame is something that no one else knows about that you kind of hide over here in the dark. But open shame is something that everyone can see. And Daniel says what belongs to us, what belongs to our fathers, what belongs to our leaders is shame on account of our sin that everyone can see because of the consequences that have come to us. And then Daniel goes on to say, not only have these consequences come to us, right? He says that in verses 5 and 6. We have sinned, we've done wrong, and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So we violated your law, we neglected your prophets. Okay, so we didn't, when, they, when you sent them, we spurned them. Okay, and we said, we don't want to hear what you have to say, which is why Jeremiah cried all the time. All right? He's a weeping prophet. Maybe why Elijah's curled up in a ball there in a cave, even after he sees the prophets of Baal defeated on Mount Carmel, because Israel rejected the prophets time and time again. And Daniel says, it happened. That's what we did. That was the pattern of our lives as a people. And then in verses 11 to 13, Daniel says that the reason Jerusalem was overthrown, the temple was ransacked and destroyed, and the people carried away what he calls over and over again in the text, three separate occasions, a great calamity that God had befall them is because they are experiencing the covenant curses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In verse 11, Daniel says, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. In Deuteronomy 28, God says through Moses to His covenant people, He says, As I have rescued you from Egypt and I'm about to send you into the land of promise, if you walk with Me, if you obey Me, you submit to Me, you listen to Me, there's going to be covenant blessings that are going to be abounding for you. But should you choose to walk contrary to Me, should you choose to rebel against Me and turn away from Me, then there are these covenant curses that I shall send to discipline you. And here are a few of them from Deuteronomy 28. See if you can identify them in Daniel. Deuteronomy 28.25 The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 30, you shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but you shall not be restored to it. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. 
Verse 33, a nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither nor you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a whore, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. In verse 41, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Sound familiar? God says, if you spurn me, abandon me, walk contrary to me, and that is the pattern of your life, discipline will fall, and a lot of it looks like what the people experienced that led them into Babylon. Now, notice, I love, you're like, man, that's heavy. But notice what Daniel's not doing in the text here. Right, because so much of this prayer is just confession of sin. That's what he's not doing. He's not going, you know, like, like our kids do at the holidays, okay? Mother and father, right? Highly exalted ones. We have been such good little boys and girls all year long. For these 11 months, we have taken out the trash. For these 11 months, we have cleaned our domiciles. For these 11 months, we have folded our clothing and put them into our drawers. For these 11 months, that's not what he's doing. He's not going, we've been such good little boys and girls. He's saying, Father, we have been such bad boys and girls. He's not coming to God saying, God, would you incline your ear and hear the cries of your people because of our merits? But rather, he's coming to God and saying, God, would you incline your ear and hear the cries of your people and fulfill your promise because of your mercy? He says, God, over several times, he says, what belongs to us is open shame. But what belongs to the Lord our God is righteousness and forgiveness and mercy. He says, this, this is what we bring to the table. Nothing but sin and shame. But this is what God brings to the table. A faithful, covenant-keeping love that manifests itself in righteousness and forgiveness and abundant mercy. So when Daniel comes before God in prayer to say, God, would you be faithful to the promise you made to Jeremiah some 70, some 70 years in Babylon and then you would restore our fortunes. He's not saying, God, look at how good we've been. He's saying, God, you are so good. Would you answer for your name's sake so that your people and the nations would know that you are a God that you have proclaimed yourself to be, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, filled with mercy, and refusing to abandon your people because you are not done with them. 
So Daniel is not standing on his merits or the merits of the people rather than standing on the mercy of God. And church, the only sure footing for a vibrant prayer life is God's mercy. That's it. See, some of us shrink back from prayer because we've been trying to stand on our merits. And so when things are going really well in our life, man, we're like crushing, we're not hitting home runs, but like doubles and triples, right? We're rounding the bases, and we're taking four balls, we're not swinging, and, right? When things are going well for us, right? And we'll press in and pray our God. It's one of the ways to know that you're standing on your merits is when your Christian life seems to be, you're excelling at it, right? You could write a book, and people should read it. You're pressing in in prayer, but whenever things begin to unravel and fall apart, you pull back from prayer because you functionally don't really believe that God is this God of mercy. I remember seeing a sign on a a car wash, one of those self-service car wash with the wands and the quarters and all those things, uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, over in Rowlett, and I was pulling into the car wash and I saw this big sign up there. It said, no ATVs or four-wheel drive vehicles covered in mud. And like, really? So I got to wash my car before I can wash my car. Right? I got to wash this stuff before I can clean it. Right? And like, I get it. They don't want the mud clogging up all their systems. Like, that all makes sense. But listen, the principle is this, Right? With God, you don't have to clean yourself up before you can come to Him to be cleaned. Right? He's not saying, we, before you come to me in prayer, child, right? Go ahead and wipe everything off your face, all the dirt. Go ahead and take a shower, get your hair brushed, right? Blow dry, straighten it, put on the suit, put on the tie, put on the dress, and come in before me so that you can stand in my presence and so that I can bask in your cleanness. He's saying, no, bring all of the mud into the stall and I will take the pressure washer and sometimes it's going to hurt a little bit, but I'm going to spray it all off of you because I am the one who will clean you. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Him. Because the truth is, church, you and I never could. That's why in Psalm 24, listen, I'm almost done. Psalm 24. The author of the psalm says this in verses 3 and following. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah, which means rest or pause or think or reflect. In other words, think about that. Chew on that for a while. Who's going to go up into the presence of God? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not defiled themselves. Some of you are like, that's me. And if that's what you think, then you don't understand the gospel. Because that text in Psalm 24, listen church, it's not describing me. 
And it's not describing you because if any of us, it would, it would, it, if any of us were dependent upon ourselves to rid our hands of their filth and our hearts of their defilement before we could go into the presence of God, then we would be damned forever. But there is one and only one who rightfully had access to ascend the hill of the Lord and to come into His presence. And His name is Jesus. This one who was born of a virgin and who perfectly kept the law of God lived in our place and died in our place and rose from the grave. And He is the only one whose hands are clean enough to come into the presence of the Father. He is the only one whose heart is pure enough to come into the presence of the Father. But I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that because He did, you can. Through Him. That's why in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews doesn't say this. He doesn't say, right? Therefore, Right? Let us approach the throne of works with confidence in our merits that God is going to look upon us with favor. Rather, he says, therefore, let us boldly come before the throne of grace to find help in our hour of need. And the reason the throne of grace is the throne of grace is because the two verses before that in Hebrews chapter 4 talk about the high priestly finished work of Christ having given Himself for us and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where He is seated, therefore, because He is there, because He was here in our place and He is there, we can go in with boldness and confidence. So if you're here this morning, you're like, well, maybe I'll get a vibrant prayer life once I clean my life up. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that your prayer life will grow in vibrancy no matter your deficiencies as you come before God and you bear your heart before Him and you pray the Scriptures and His revelation back to Him with His reputation at the center of your prayers then God begins to do a transforming work in your life and all of a sudden this clob of mud falls off and this clob of mud falls off and this eye gets clearer and your brain, the fog that was there, goes, begins to dissipate. He does not have a sign hanging out saying, you've got to clean yourself up before you can clean yourself up. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is good news. In Daniel chapter 9, I'll close with this. You see that the efficacy, the effectiveness of your prayer life, church, right, is not dependent upon your merits, but on God's mercy. So stand on that. And cry out to Him. That his name will be made big in your life and in your situations. That his reputation will be the ultimate aim. And fuel all of that by what he has said in the book. Let's pray together. Father, today, we stand marveling at your mercy for us. That what belongs to us, just like what belonged to the people 
of Daniel's day is nothing but sin and shame. But what belongs to you is faithfulness and love and forgiveness and mercy. And because of that, we can come boldly before you. Because of your Son who ascended the hill of Calvary in our place. We can come boldly before you because of your Son who was raised upon a cross. We're able to come boldly before you because of your Son who was buried in a tomb. We are able with confidence to approach you because of your Son who was raised from the grave and is seated at your right hand, Father. And in the sending of your Holy Spirit, we're able to approach you. May your Holy Spirit this morning persuade us of your mercy for us. And that, that mercy would wash our souls clean. And remind us once again of just how faithful you are to keep covenant with us. So that our hearts would, not in a formulaic way, God, but just have an impulse to make our prayers in our specific situations, ultimately about your reputation and glory. And that we would pray what you have said back to you. Back to you. We would say to you what you have said to us and ask you to make it so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.